Good evening. The television and radio stations of the United States and their affiliated stations are proud to provide facilities for a discussion of issues in the current political campaign by the two major candidates for the presidency. The candidates need no introduction. The Republican candidate, Vice President Richard M. Nixon, and the Democratic candidate, Senator John F. Kennedy. Guys, I had so much fun covering the conventions with you, but it's time to turn our eyes to the debates. And that means debate prep. I will be back live on twitch.tv slash Justin R. Young, Monday, August 31st at 8 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern time. And we're going to be watching old debates. In fact, we're going to do this every Monday through the 2020 debates. And we begin with the one that started it all. Nixon versus Kennedy, the first televised debate. If you listen to Raise the Dead, you know I know a bit about this one. We're going to have a blast. Twitch.tv slash Justin R. Young, Monday, August 31st, 8 p.m. Eastern. The following is brought to you by Andy Beach, Nick Wood, Paul Boyer, Michael Bolick, and Will Harris. I can't believe my voice survived. What a robust set of pipes your boy has. And I went this long, commentating live four hours a night, every night for the last two weeks, talking about these conventions, and yet I'm still standing, mama, I'm still here. But also they're done for the next four years. We are done with conventions for the next four years. And we, hopefully, will never see a set of conventions like that ever again. I long for the normalcy of a boring arena. I want the silly hats back. I want the delegates that are, are looking to get interviewed back. Oh, I want it all. I want all that old convention feeling back in my life four years from now. But now, man, an operatic end to a bizarre set of cons. And uh, Trump went out <laughs> Trump style. You know, if if you thought that uh, uh, there was spectacle in Joe Biden making his way out to a parking lot and having a bunch of car horns honk for him, then 1,500 people on their feet clapping, screaming, and yelling while Trump 2020 explodes over the Washington Monument, well, no one's going to outgild the Donald. We will uh, discuss my final thoughts on those uh, all, all four days of the convention in a second. We also have a development. Guys, 
One of my major pet peeves with this issue, and specifically the campaign of Joseph Robinette Biden Jr., is the fact that he hasn't left his house. And all I got told was, oh, he's on a glide path. Let Donald Trump self-destruct. He doesn't need to do anything. He's just going to waltz right into the White House from his basement. They should build a catapult. Well, there's some developments. And friends, the era of Haida Biden might be rapidly drawing to a close. And finally, we will be joined by Kevin Ryan of The Blaze. He is a member of the White House press corps, and he watched more of this stuff than I did. He might be the only person I know on earth who watched every inch of the convention, even the really, really, really boring parts, the live stream from Charlotte, where they actually had some party business. We're going to discuss everything about it. It's Kevin. Kevin's the best. Y'all know Kevin. But first... Together we are unstoppable. Together we are unbeatable. Because together we are the proud citizens of the United States of America. And on November 3rd, we will make America safer. We will make America stronger. We will make America prouder. And we will make America greater than ever before. I am very, very proud to be the nominee of the Republican Party. I love you all. God bless you. And God bless America. Thank you very much. In 2016, the Saturday after Donald Trump pulled off one of the biggest upsets in American political history to become the president of the United States, Kate McKinnon, actress on Saturday Night Live who had played Hillary Clinton, sat down in her Clinton costume at a piano. She played Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah as the cold open to a... Fairly famous show. Actually was the re-debut of Dave Chappelle. Four years later, Donald Trump closes one of the more bizarre Republican National Conventions with Hallelujah. Not only sung here by American opera singer Christopher Macchio, but also while one of the biggest fireworks displays I have ever seen in convention history exploded over the nation's capital, including one memorable moment where Trump and 2020 cracked through the sky. The big chungus can get petty sometimes, but hey, it's on brand now that there is no 
Sacred ground, past the conventions, it is all on the line. We are past 69 days until election day, and there will be no niceties from here on out. But let's focus on the RNC. For my money, it felt more alive than the DNC. There were a lot more speakers, and it never felt to me like the Republicans were trying to fill time in a way that the Democrats felt like they were trying to fill time. Speeches went a little longer. All of the montages in in both conventions were superfluous, but they're always superfluous. Republicans also went a half hour longer. They went two and a half hours each night. Throughout it all, there was a consistent message. The Democrats are far more left than they've ever been in your history voting. They are here to fundamentally reshape society. And even if there are nice operators, and Joe Biden in night four wound up getting the full oppo treatment of let's take a look at what he has done in Washington over the last near five decades. But in general, the the message was, and you even heard this language specifically, both from Donald Trump and Rudy Giuliani, is that Biden is a Trojan horse. Yeah, you look at Biden and, and you don't see somebody, you don't see Bernie Sanders. You don't see a radical leftist. That's fine. Your eyes aren't lying to you. It is in his carriage that lies the true danger. And Joe Biden is either too weak or willingly walking these menaces in, says the Republican messaging. Donald Trump, on the other hand, is everything that a average voter would want and none of what you have heard from the media. Indeed. Tremendous separation of what the public narrative is versus what the Republicans would like you to believe. Donald Trump is kind. Donald Trump has many, many, many black friends. Donald Trump has elevated women throughout his organization and currently elevates them now. Donald Trump cares greatly about pre-existing conditions and health care. Indeed, the pit bull that now sits behind the press secretary lectern, Kaylee McEnany, told a stirring story on night three about how she had a preventative double mastectomy and how much preconditions mattered to her when getting insurance and how much Donald Trump very much shares that plight and, of course, is empathetic. Donald Trump has cared about criminal justice reform. We talked a little bit about this on Wednesday, but it made me actually start taking a look at polls. In fact, somebody was was uh, 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 teletyping me into our smoky back room set while we were watching the conventions on Wednesday night that when you look at some of the current polling for Donald Trump, he is making measurable increases with the black vote. In 2016, he won 8% of it. I'm looking at the most freshest poll I can, which is a YouGov poll. It's got Biden ahead by nine points. And it has Donald Trump 
with 12% of the black vote. That's up 50% on 2016. And again, the black vote does matter for Biden specifically because he needs to blow out Donald Trump in the cities. If you want to win Ohio, you've got to win Cleveland, Columbus, and Cincinnati. If you want to win Pennsylvania, you got to win Philadelphia and Pittsburgh. If you want to win Michigan, you got to win Detroit. These are where the black people live in general, at least in the numbers that Joe Biden needs. Now, will this matter? Like we mentioned on Wednesday, maybe. I hear some other stuff on Twitter. This seems like a very Twitter argument that a lot of the messaging is not for black people, but rather for white people to not feel racist because black people are giving them permission. And everything is everything uh, on a certain level. I guess there is a holistic argument if black people are shown to be enthusiastic for Donald Trump, then white people will feel some absolution for racial guilt. And I will buy the argument more in the messaging of we do not live in a a discriminative country. I mean, some of the, the lines that came out of some of the black speakers to that effect. But there were a lot of lines from a lot of the black speakers saying that racism does exist. They felt racism. Herschel Walker said, I'm from the South. I know what racism look like. looks like. It doesn't look like Donald Trump. So, I don't know. It, that feels a little inside to me. And even if that was the case, I, I feel like that's where you get more of a token appreciation for the black vote. But this was like three or four segments a night, if not more, all four nights leading up to Alice Walker on Thursday, who was a very compelling speaker. She is somebody that was in jail for a nonviolent drug offense, a life plus 25 years, was a model uh, a prisoner, became an activist, and eventually was pardoned by Donald Trump and then was among the leading proponents, along with Kim Kardashian, who didn't get mentioned during the RNC for the First Step Act, which is Donald Trump's criminal justice reform. Unlike some of the other speakers who were very political, Alice Johnson was not. She did not make a point to say that Clinton didn't pardon her and Bush didn't pardon her and Obama didn't pardon her. It was Trump who pardoned her. She was just very thankful that she was pardoned and directly credited Donald Trump for it. The other element that obviously was front and center is law and order. We have riots in Kenosha. We have civil unrest throughout the country. We have seen a tremendous amount of not only protests uh, against police brutality, but also rioting. It's gone along with it. The argument that the RNC sought to make was that the Democrats are putting political priorities ahead of your personal safety. That they have gone 
beyond compassion. They have gone beyond understanding the situation and trying to solve the problem and rather have given themselves to a political ideology that at its most cartoonish lets out prisoners and closes down churches. Some of this goes back to some like Barry Goldwater kind of stuff. The idea, whenever you hear the conservative argument that the you know churches being closed down equals crime, it's not necessarily even just the one for one, you ain't got Jesus in your life and that's why you're running around wild. Although certainly for an evangelical crowd, that is part of it. It really kind of goes back to this idea that was crystallized in Barry Goldwater's The Conscience of a Conservative where the Democrats in that book are said to be focused very narrowly on the monetary elements of government. Here's what government can, here's how government can cut you a check. That's what the Democrats, this is again, this is according to this book that was ghostwritten by somebody else but has Barry Goldwater's name on it. Conservatives, on the other hand, have a holistic view of the man. That the man is not just how he interacts with the government. The man is who he wakes up uh, and sees in the mirror. How his kids look at him. What his relationship with his self is. What his relationship with uh, a higher power, his spiritual relationship is. Whether or not he gets his blood pumping. That only then, when we look out for the 360 of a human being, do we get the most out of society, which is a collection of human beings. This is something that, you know, goes in and out of favor with uh, uh, the, the, the Republicans. You know, certainly, Barry Goldwater hated how far... Reagan, a protege of Goldwater, took that to the evangelical right. He felt that it became far too wrapped in religiosity. But Donald Trump, although certainly a sword and shield for the evangelical right, is much more of a populist. And that is the core of his law and order argument. At least what he was trying to make, that I saw he was trying to make last night. That we are disconnecting ourselves from the things that make us human. And so, number one, we should not be surprised that we see violence in the streets. And number two, we should not be surprised that the people that only understand a transactional relationship with government in the Democratic Party and Joe Biden and Kamala Harris have no answer for it. Because even in the most charitable explanation, they don't even speak the language that can calm the people. Which is its own bizarre situation considering we're talking about Donald Trump being able to calm the populace when pretty much his natural talent is throwing Molotov cocktails. And then an opera man sang. All right, we're going to talk more about the Republican National Convention with Kevin Ryan but there's one thing I got to get to. At last, my love has 
over. He's leaving the basement. Hide a Biden. No more. At least allegedly. And he's not doing it immediately. He's going to take his time. It looks as if Joe Biden will indeed campaign outside of the Delaware High School that he's been holding very managed press conferences at. This according to the Arizona Republic. Joe Biden is planning on visiting Arizona and other swing states in Delaware. Quote Biden, one of the things we're thinking about is going to Wisconsin and Minnesota, spending some time in Pennsylvania, out in Arizona. This was during a virtual fundraiser for a group identified as Illinois trial lawyers. He said that he would obey all state laws in terms of social distancing to prevent any COVID spread and contrast it with Donald Trump's 1,500 strong crowd during his convention speech. Obviously, Joe Biden wants to maintain the moral high ground when it comes to social distancing, but oh my good God, is this overdue? Like, you got to do something. You got to show some kind of vigor, some kind of uh, push, and it just puts him out there and he's going to talk more. Now we'll see exactly how fluid some of these campaign stops are. I very much believe that in his heart of hearts, Joe Biden very much wants to talk to people. I think he wants to take Q&As. I don't think the people that are running his campaign now will allow him to do that. But we'll see. I like a little juice. I like a little movement. You guys know how much I've hated Hyde Biden. And it looks like there is at least some thawing in the strategy that we can just sort of do nothing and just parachute into the White House because Donald Trump is so unpopular. Why would this be happening? Well, probably because there's been a new slate of polls that have Biden's lead in a lot of swing states not quite as beefy as he'd like. National polls have stayed fairly robust. He still is in the 7 to 10% range. There are a few scary ones. Rasmussen has him only up one point, well within the margin of error. But by and large, I think they're afraid that they are, are, are not able to counter-program the tsunami of content for which Donald Trump will continue to pump out between now and Election Day. It's almost as if somebody should have predicted that this was a presidential election where these kinds of things happen. You would think if you had a billion-dollar campaign, somebody would suggest, I don't know, campaigning? But I won't criticize him now. I mean, I just did. But I'll stop right now because I'm glad they're getting out there. We'll see exactly how much. It's not happening until after Labor Day, so it's not like he's announcing, oh, I'm, I'm going to be there next week, tomorrow. I mean, if he wanted to swing the narrative, he could have been somewhere today. That would have done a pretty good job of moving the uh, uh, spotlight off of Donald Trump, but baby steps.
Baby steps up the basement stairs. Baby steps to the car. Baby steps to the airport. Baby steps to the campaign stop. They asked me, did I go deep in my bag? And I tell them, I showed sure did. Ah, the mailbag. You want to be a part of it? Easy. Write us, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Again, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Adam in Wisconsin writes, I like your take on the convention. However, I know that these are always not for me. I distrust all politicians and look at them the same way as greasy used car salesmen trying to sell me a lemon. I do not allow, uh, I would not allow incumbents if I could. I also found Obama pitching protecting the Constitution to be laughed at, laugh out loud funny. Adam in Wisconsin, we're not so different, you and I. Jack writes, as you might have heard, the president of Liberty University and supporter of President Trump, Jerry Falwell Jr., was forced to step down uh, indefinitely as president of the university due to some very unchristian like behavior. I'm going to add editorially, he has now officially separated himself from Liberty University. This was due to some very unchristian-like behavior. I will again add editorially, it was because he uh, and his wife apparently were involved with a pool boy by the name of, I believe, Giancarlo Granda, who was a pool boy at the Fountain Blue on South Beach. This is such a Miami story. And eventually, the relationship, which uh, was Jerry Falwell's wife sexually engaging with Granda and Jerry Falwell often watching, Granda then uh, solicited the Falwells to help fund a hostel that was apparently very party-friendly to the point where it needed to be hosed down each morning. Back to the email. Many in the evangelical community have been increasingly critical of both Falwell and Trump since the 2016 election. I'm a student at Liberty and a lifelong conservative, and even I will admit that I've seen many conservative evangelicals break from their support for Trump in this election cycle. What is your opinion on the evangelical support of Trump, and do you think you'll be able to secure the base again in November? P.S. Love what you're doing, and I've been an avid listener for a long time now, particularly loved your segments on the 14 features of fascism. Well, Jack, thank you very much. Man, would it be what a bizarre moment. If I want I want all the Liberty University support I can get. I'm going to say it. I want everybody, if people at Liberty University dig this show, then one day I would love to do a live show at Liberty University. That would make me so happy. That that this scruffy old Florida to the Bay Area atheist could could connect with the youth, the evangelical youth. Oh, it just makes me so happy. So, my thought on Trump's evangelical support. Number one, it is one of the one of the most fascinating things I've ever seen in politics. I've said it before, I'll say it again. Donald Trump built a brand, a brand based around being a literal Bible villain. <laughs> hoarder of ostentatious wealth, worshiper of false idols, better of multiple women, thumbing his nose at the sanctity of marriage, 
He was a playboy, a playboy in a, a, an era of 1990s New York that will you know, long be held up as, as an era of excess coming out of the 80s and through the 90s. His worth to the evangelical community is not that he is of them. His worth to the evangelical community is that he is a defender of them. Trump even spelled this out. Do you want somebody that you agree 100% with that loses all the time? Or do you want to welcome me in from the cold and let me be your sword and shield? Because I'm going to win. And then guess what? He did. So you can look at Ben Carson. Ben Carson is a pious man. Ben Carson is somebody that, that absolutely is going to have the bona fides that even the most stodgy professor at Liberty University would say, there's a guy I can support. That's what Ben Carson ain't going to do, win an election. So do I believe that Donald Trump will secure his evangelical support again? I do. Because I don't think that anybody can on the evangelical side can look at Biden and say, yeah, that's my guy. Not when you have bedrock issues like abortion there. Uh, I, I just think that it's, it's, you're not gonna, you're not gonna, evangelicals might stay home, but I think that that's, that's an animated community. It is one that gets to the polls. And so, yeah, I do think that Trump will carry evangelicals with the same margin, if not more. Now, are they going to hem and haw? Is it going to take them a while to come back home? Yeah. They might wander the desert for a little bit. But I do think that they are going to find their way back into the Trump column. Dav writes, I was pontificating about how hard Trump could uh, potentially go in his re-election campaign, and I remembered. Uh, there's been enough so you can't ignore them rumblings about demanding China pay out global reparations for how they followed the Chernobyl playbook in handling COVID-19. And that reminded me the last time we did something like that. We made Germany pay crazy, harsh global reparations for screwing everything up in World War I. And that, by the way, didn't work out. Eventually, the end result was an even more radicalized, hyper-Deutschland, who doubled down on crazy occult-inspired, racist-driven delusions of global domination. Given that global bit of historical context, I've got this gut feeling that very quickly and very spitefully ripping away China's newfound wealth, global recognition, and economic reliance via the avenue of global pandemic reparations could result in a similar situation, but times a billion. China really cares about quote-unquote saving face and how they're perceived. And when the cards are down, they're also a giant totalitarian communist regime, which is kind of sort of okay with dropping bombs before discussing why they feel offended. And I also have this gut feeling that China is the antagonistic bully and should be held accountable for this pandemic is a topic that is going to come up with both the Republicans and Democrats and used as a flippant election issue football. But with that whole tug of war playing out over the big red button labeled Cold War 2, I don't know. Uh, all right, so Dev, the reparations thing has not quite gotten the same traction that I thought it might. What is real is, uh, you know, I, we, I read that uh, cross tab from the YouGov poll with uh, Donald Trump at 12% black support. Here's something else I looked at. Is China an enemy or a friend? And across the aisle, there is like Republicans think China is more of an enemy, but 
Democrats do not think that they are a friend. Nobody in America thinks China is a friend now. They are not a developing nation that we hope uh, uh, blossoms so we can have a better trading partner. They are bad news. So I do think that we are going to get a quienes mas macho China conversation between Biden and Trump. And certainly you saw Trump hit Joe Biden on being uh, China's puppet during the RNC. But I don't know if we're going to get a reparations conversation. The larger issue is exactly how far the Chinese economy can be strained uh, in its own cycle of things going up and down, specifically in a command and control economy, but also how much America trying to divest itself in terms of manufacturing uh, will A, happen, and B, factor in. Finally, Mike says, I have dabbled with PX3 for a few years, but only started regularly listening and becoming a patron in the last couple months. I have a question. Cocaine Mitch, where does this moniker come from? I find it hilarious, but I wonder to its origins. Oh, this little guy? So, Cocaine Mitch is a play off a commercial that aired during the 2018 uh, off-year elections where a man by the name of Don Blankenship, not even running against Mitch McConnell, he was running for Joe Manchin's seat in West Virginia. Now, Blankenship's got a colorful history himself. He went to jail because he was the CEO of an energy company where a coal mine exploded. He's got a very humorous, monotonous way of speaking, specifically when he's spitting hot fire, like he wants to ditch Cocaine Mitch, and that Cocaine Mitch has a China family for which he has made very wealthy. What Blankenship is referring to is that, number one, Mitch McConnell's wife, Elaine Chow, is Chinese, and that Elaine Chow's family runs a shipping line, a shipping line that once had a drug bust on it where a bunch of cocaine was found. What this has to do with Mitch McConnell, well, we can only truly know in the mind of Mr. Blankenship. However, Cocaine Mitch became a nickname, and when Don Blankenship lost in the primaries, it was Mitch McConnell's personal Twitter account that photoshopped the Senate Majority Leader's face on a promo poster of Pablo Escobar from the Netflix series Narcos that said, sorry, Don, try again next time. It's very funny. He embraced the cocaine Mitch name, and it's just it's just a very funny thing that I like to say over and over again. Uh, the, the sounder that I play for cocaine Mitch... <laughs> That is Disco S, it's the S word, by O3 Greedo and Kenny Beats. That entire album, Netflix and Deal by O3 Greedo, who is in jail for drug charges, is awesome. One of my favorite rap albums over the last couple of years. Uh, I've, I've, I've just burned it out. O3 Greedo has just such a great voice, and he is a major cinephile. There is a song on that album called Brad Pitt that uses 
the entire IMDb of Brad Pitt. Maybe not the entire uh, IMDb. I don't think he does anything on seven years in Tibet. But he uses some random, random stuff. He has a line about like, oh, my my Mexican and California people, which just kind of sounds like he's shouting out a thing. But no, Brad Pitt did a movie, The Mexican, and another movie, California with a K. Great. Free Greedo. And also, make sure that you write in to our mailbag, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Again, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Do you remember the Access Hollywood tape? Do you remember the Podesta leaks? Do you remember Alicia Machado? Do you remember Kazir Khan? Do you remember Comey reopening the email investigation? If you remember all that stuff, you remember it because it happened between where we are now in the election and election day four years ago. So let me ask you this question. Is now the time that you want to make sure you double up the PX3 in your life? A fresh episode on Monday? A fresh episode on Thursday? Making sure that you get the Justin Robert Young take on every little bit of late breaking news that we don't even know exists yet? Oh, cause it's coming. If you think so, then you need to head to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. You need to get on our $3 tier. You need to get that custom RSS feed. You need to put it into the podcast player of your choice because you never need to log on and you never need to download. You can make sure that you get four episodes each and every week. Four episodes a week for three bucks. Steal. Do it. Take politicsseriously.com. Glad I got that one on uh, on the recording. <laughs> Our guest today is a staff writer at The Blaze. One of my favorite people to talk to in general, but even more so when it comes to conservative politics. The one, the only, my favorite member of the White House press corps, Kevin Ryan. What's up, brother? Not too bad, my friend. How are you? Well, you know, Donda hasn't dropped, but other than that, I, I think uh, I'm okay. I'm okay. We're out of we're out of the convention weeds. Is that Hurricane Donda or Comet Donda? Uh, no, that's Kanye's Donda. Oh, okay. yeah. yeah, yeah. When is that? When is that supposed to? About three weeks ago, according to Kanye. But but then again, he's also late with his federal election uh, commission report. So uh, <laughs> I oh, guess. Yeah. I mean, look, I mean, like, it's as if the FEC doesn't know that he's Kanye. Of course, he's going to be three weeks late on his reports. <laughs> yeah, just give Jesus a break, dude. Give him you a know? break. Give him a break. All right. Is it is it uh, really a thing that he could be uh, charged with election fraud? Have you heard about that? Well, yes. If the Federal Election Commission was a thing, which I don't even think that 
they have enough people on their board to do anything. So, <laughs> like, yes, they they could theoretically, or maybe they do. They just got enough people on their board. Ah, we'll have to talk to we'll have to talk to our money guy, Dave Leventhal. But, uh, uh, yeah, we will. Uh, well. We'll follow up on that. But anyway, they're not going to make anything stick to Jesus. He's fine. He's he's washed in the blood. Uh, Kevin, you might be the only person who watched more of this convention than I did. You, uh, uh, God love you. You were watching the live stream of the actual boring convention stuff that was happening perfunctory in Charlotte. Uh, uh, what of that? was of worth or interest. Oh yeah. Um, I'm going to be, uh, try not to be too cynical and say, um, some of it. Uh, I don't know. It, it was interesting. Um, uh, it, it was interesting just like seeing, uh, tr Trump open things up a little bit and, and kind of get a feel for where he's going. I, I think it ended a lot better. Um, I mean, obviously, there were no fireworks at the beginning. <laughs> there, there wasn't a 30-minute fireworks show followed by an opera performance. Yeah, yeah. It's just uh, just crazy. All right, well, he, real quick, before we start breaking down the, the convention itself, uh, uh, was there anything to be read into from what you watched of the delegates that were there at the RNC that we did not have a platform. Uh, the the this was something that was debated for months now. What the Republicans were going to do? Were they just going to use the 2016 platform? Did they want to debate a new platform? And they wound up doing the biggest punt move and and just not having one. Yeah, it, it was interesting because there was there was there was a lot of cohesion, and there was I feel like there was a a, a far more unified vision right down to this like the similarity in the writing of everyone's speeches yeah uh, especially compared to the DNC which um as trying to be as objective as possible i would compare the DNC and the RNC to it's like the difference between eating a, a cheeseburger and eating a spicy black bean burger <laughs> um wait which one was which uh, I'm gonna go with the RNC is the cheeseburger. Okay, it, familiar, it familiar. It's like if you're gonna eat a cheeseburger, you might as, it might as well be worth it, you know? Yeah. Um, and for context, I think last time we talked, I was a raging liberal, and uh, <laughs> this time I'm I'm a little more closer to the center, especially after last night. Um. And there were a few, there were a few moments, you know, there was, uh, it was smart of them to open up with, uh, Charlie Kirk, even though I'm pretty sure he's a robot. Yeah. Well, and then also they tacked on kind of this 30 minute pre-show to each night that the, the yeah. RNC went two and a half hours each night. The DNC had like maybe 10 minutes up front that they would put on, but theoretically, that time is there in a bygone era uh, where you are just speaking to hardcores because the networks are not going to cover it. This is back when yeah. you were making all of your convention coverage so you could get simultaneous carriage on all of the major over-the-air networks. Now it probably matters a little less. The cable nets can go to you whenever they want. Uh, uh, the networks obviously have restrictions, but 
Charlie Kirk goes early on night one. Matt Gates goes early on night one. And there were some speakers that were, you would think, would have gotten more primetime slots and, and didn't, uh, uh, you know, because they were in that first that first half hour. It's been such a long week that I forgot Gates spoke. It feels like years ago that Gates spoke at the convention. I know. Uh the uh the production values are what blew me away partially because like like when we were growing up uh you know the the right conservatives uh republicans were like the people who are like uh the interwebs are bad for you you know sure yeah like, it was it was like for me i think it was a surprise to see the republican national convention to be so glossy and visually appealing where um but, and you know that's Trump. That's he's a he's, TV he's, guy. Yeah, he's TV. Yeah. And but I think the optics were were bad with the DNC. I mean, like comparing Biden's acceptance speech, which the speech itself to me was just kind of like an elevated Trump's or uh, one of his Trump speeches. You know, we, we, having seen him in person, yeah, you and I heard him give that speech. Many times before. No, he, this was this was a good version. I, I thought that he had he had two great speeches so far in this campaign. Yeah. One after he won in South Carolina, and and then at the DNC. Uh, that being said, I think expectations were sub Fraggle Rock, so he didn't really have to <laughs> do a ton to make everybody uh, jump up and down. But I thought I thought he delivered. He did. It was a great speech. Yeah. It was. Um, it was very measured. Um, I'm glad he didn't bring up corn pop. Um, <laughs> well, or sure. maybe I wish he had brought up corn pop, actually. He was a bad dude. I mean, I think the biggest thing that I liked about the DNC was that night, that final night, they finally set up a story, set up a narrative. And the narrative was bully versus bullied. And Joe yeah. Biden was the bullied. Trump is the bully. And and if you if, if you set that up, then you know, okay, I know exactly who I'm rooting for. I've felt picked on in my life. I've felt kicked down in my life. I look at, at Donald Trump, and this is something that I do think animates Democratic voters, and they see the person that oppressed them. My mom got radicalized in politics because of the 2016 election. But beyond exactly what she, uh, uh, you know, what, what she believed in politically, she saw as a woman who has you know, uh, uh, try to strive in business. Donald Trump was every guy who got to waltz in front of her when she had the experience and she had the, uh, 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 the, the actual claim to a title that he just moonwalks on in and everybody applauds and the woman gets trampled. I think that there is the idea that Trump is the bully and Biden was somebody that could stand up to him. But man, it feels like 10 years from that uh, at this point when we speak a week later and we have so many fireworks and opera, <laughs> you know, in, in between. Definitely. And I think, and this is, seems to be the case with Biden a lot, it's, man, it's just a little too, it's too little too late. Um, I, I hadn't thought of that, the, the bully the bully angle and you're you're absolutely right about setting a narrative which is is tough because trump is the narrative guy he's he tells the stories i mean like we've, we've been to 
Trump rallies. Yeah. You know, when he he has, you know, tens of thousands of people in the palm of his hands because he knows how to tell a story and he knows how to tell a story that they want to hear. Mm-hmm. Biden, I don't know. No, I mean, he, he Biden is at his best in close quarters. Biden is at his best when you look at him and you're like, hey, that's a regular guy. Like yes. Biden really has probably more than Trump, the 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 George W. Bush guy you want to have a beer with quality. I love right. Have a beer with him. Like I, I feel like, man, I could sit down with Joe Biden. I, I could have a conversation about, I mean, just stories from the Senate and like old, you know, old Senate stuff like, man, I, I could sit down and, and uh, uh, chop it up with him. For a while, Trump, I don't know. I, I And yet, for whatever reason, that doesn't matter as much in this particular election because Joe Biden wants to showcase the fact that he's the adult in the room. He's not the friendly guy, per se. He is the steady hand on the wheel in turbulent times. Uh, and yet now that is kind of in peril because I feel like, and, and maybe it's just this RNC, but it's starting to show up here in the polls that... The Trump campaign has turned these riots against the Democrats, and now and now Biden's sweating. I, I think that's exactly what happening is happening, and that's that's understandable, man. Um, did I tell you? Did I tell you when I was in Iowa uh, for the Iowa State Fair, my dad chatted with Biden for a little bit. Oh, really? No. Yeah, it was, it was great. My dad's Irish. He, he moved here when he was like uh, thirty-three, and. He, he just like walked up to him. He was he was taking all the photos for me. Just walked up to Biden and uh, he said, "Hi, I'm Irish." And then uh, no, Biden heard my dad's accent and said that you know, oh yeah, my, my family comes from County Luth, and gave him this like very coherent answer, um, which is like which is an interesting point because you know we've seen. We've seen Biden in person, and his we've seen him like you. You saw the dog face pony soldier. I did, yeah, well, yeah. We've also seen the Biden who is so endlessly charming, yes, and coherent and passionate. Um, I mean, I, I remember the the first time I saw Biden was in in Iowa at the Plumbers Union when he made that very very bad either or statement about how. Uh, poor kids are just as talented as white kids. Yeah. Um, but the, the thing you we didn't see is the the charming way that he covered up for it immediately after that, and and the way he pulled in the room, which, which like br- brings me to the next thing I wanted to talk to you about, man, uh-huh. is like the the role that uh, the media as a whole, right and left, have played in this, and like. I feel like they've jammed themselves into a corner because, um, you know, during the leading up to the primaries, it was Biden. Look at this idiot that we're following around. He doesn't know how to talk. He doesn't know what to say. He's just bumbling around. He's too old. You know, we should go with Warren. We should go with Harris. And and they were kind of flopping around. And uh, now they're like, yeah, let's go with this guy. Well, I have some very, very specific feelings about how Biden became the nominee. <laughs> I mean, I think that that uh, 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 that was Bernie was about Bernie was about to leave the station, and the centrist combined into a Voltron to stop him. And and that was that was why I think we we got Biden as the nominee. But we are we are far away from that at this point. Uh, 
the question is, what matters more on election day? Does the pandemic matter more or the riots or either? I'll ask you that. Pandemic, riots, or either on November 3rd in your mind? Uh, that is if we even make it to November 3rd at this point. <laughs> I mean, um, good Lord, man. Uh, I will say, just the, the question you just asked me is indicative of the fact that, like, every day our jobs as journalists gets a little easier. But as, like, citizens of America, uh, I, I think we're uh, just, like, quaking like the rest of America. And I think that is what is going to motivate everyone, but it's just going to manifest in different ways. So I don't, man, that's the question people ask me the most. Who's going to win? Like, yeah. that's the first thing people ask me. People ask me that repeatedly. Like, they'll ask me from day to day. The same person will ask me, like, hey, uh, what do you think today? Who's going to win? And, dude, I have no idea. I mean, after last night, I would say it was. it's probably going to go to Trump. Um, he, he would just, like, he was more – he was composed. I thought his speech was very compelling, and I think it was very poetic. He obviously didn't write it, but um, oh, yeah. he, he mostly stuck to the script. His off-the-cuff stuff wasn't uh, as crude and um, – I don't want to say offensive, but yeah, offensive as his usual demeanor or, or what you'd see at a rally. Um, no, the only, the only real rally moment we got was – the you know the Obamas spied on us and got caught and we'll see what happened. That that was really the only thing that I thought other like stood out because mostly and here I'll, uh, let me ask you this, Kevin. It felt to me in watching this convention that between the Nikki Haley's, between the Tim Scotts, between some of the other speakers and even Donald Trump's speech specifically, it felt like there was this olive branch to the establishment of the Republican Party. The the people that we think of as never Trumpers. Uh, uh, in fact, one might say uh, uh, Glenn Beck leading up to the 2016 election. The idea yeah. that this is not your party. We are a circus tent and here's the organ grinder and here's the monster truck. Nikki Haley's speech, Tim Scott's speech, and even Trump's speech for the vast majority of it was not big bombast carnival barker. It was, this is the calm, measured, conservative voice that has been the center of the Republican Party for a generation. It's Goldwater, it's Reagan, it's me. Get over yourself. Come home on November 3rd. Dude, well, so, okay. So what we need is to raise the, uh, raise the, the uh, goalpost, not the goalpost, but the, the, the net. Yeah, you are slam dunking way too hard right now, my friend. <laughs> well, you, you sl the rim is gone at this point. Uh, no, I actually I spoke with Glenn a couple hours ago, and I'm not I'm not his voice. I'm not I don't represent him or anything like that. Yeah, but that's pretty much exactly what he said. It's so it's eerie how close you are to what he he said earlier. Um, and I, I don't I don't I mean. What? How did that happen? Like the the whole the not specifically with Glenn, but like the the whole the never well, Trumper transformation. Well, number one, part of it is just you know, uh, uh, <laughs> the, the, birds have a certain migration 
right? Like they go, they go south for the winter and then they go north for the summer. Uh, such is the voter, the loud complainer of I've never voted across party lines, but I'm going to do it this time. Usually it's yeah. a bluff. It, it's, it's usually something that by the time that everything ratchets up, that everyone makes their argument, there's a reason why you voted in one party and not the other. Uh, uh, and it's the reason why ultimately elections are about turning out your base. It's the reason why I thought the DNC, I mean, the DNC and the RNC both made very specific appeals to communities they don't normally talk to. The DNC spent a lot of time talking to Republicans because they yeah. believe that Republicans defecting from Trump because they are disgusted with him uh, uh, will put Biden over the top because Biden is your old fashioned guy. Sure, he doesn't. We don't agree with him on everything, but we we at least understand that he's not Trump. And then Republicans spoke a lot to black Americans, far more than I have ever seen at a Republican convention and on, on issues that weren't just, I pulled myself up by my bootstraps, which is normally how you see a black voice shaped at, at an RNC. This was about poverty. This was about black people going to jail more than white people. And that's why criminal justice reform needs to be there. If I were to bet which is going to be more impactful, I would bet in the margins that Trump will be able to win more black voters and those will be more imp uh, impactful because they might come from the cities uh, where Biden needs to turn out the vote versus suburban Republicans. I think suburban Republicans are going to come home. I, I really don't think they're going to vote for Biden no matter how much you like a tweet from the Lincoln Project. For sure. Yeah, I think I think they're the I think those voters are pretty unshakable. Um, like I've, I've spoken to a lot of them and they're, they have, and this goes back to the riots. I think a lot of people see those and that's all that they're, that's all that they really need. And then all, all Trump has to do is be just slightly composed, just slightly more composed than normal. But as always, um, and dude, here's what I'm struggling with lately. And, and tell me if this is. Just uh, if I'm new to the game on this, but <laughs> lately, it, it seems like uh, the definition of reality and truth has just been completely destroyed. Like the the objectivity that we used to be able to say, like just simple things. We can't we, we like we can't say for sure that uh, Antifa exists. Um but in the next breath, it's like, oh, yeah, they're doing a great job. Or, or you know, that's yeah. that's the different narrative. That's, I don't know, man. <laughs> it's like, I was just telling my wife yesterday, I'm like, I don't know who to believe anymore. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there is no shared truth. And yeah. well said. I, I don't know if there ever was. I, I think that there was an idea, and this goes back to one of my favorite my favorite theories is that we used to have a monoculture, right? At least there was a clearing house of information. We had very important gatekeepers that fed us what we knew. And those were the news, your local newspaper. Those were the national news broadcasts. Those were your local television news broadcasts, your local radio stations. They, those gatekeepers bound everybody. So by the time that you got to the water cooler, 
you could say, uh, oh, you know, that Kramer, man, what is he going to get into next? This is before <laughs> Kramer started yelling the N-word. But uh, <laughs> the idea that now uh, politics is one of the only things that we all can agree matters. We can't agree on the same television shows. We can't agree on the same music acts. Uh, because now we have different places to get all of them. Everything's time shifted, so there's no guarantee that we're all watching it together. And politics has always been a game of shaping your own information and narratives. And so now that becoming the one place that we all gather means that the patterns of behavior we've had since the beginning of time are now so much louder. So you're right. It is bizarre to say, Oh, Antifa doesn't really exist, but I support them. And that's like a thing that gets said. It, it, it's, you know, the the idea of, or there's some of the, the Republican arguments of like, oh, well, uh, there are rioting, but also there are protesters that are peaceful. Like, like there's, there is just such a different shaping of, of what we are, are looking at. Uh, and, and it's on issues that should be binding us. They should be binding us. I mean, the, the protests are, are, are something that's been divisive in America for, for decades, but the pandemic should be a unifying moment. We should all be saying, hey, let's get out of this together. But it, it, it divided us ever further. For sure. Yeah, that sometimes that disappoints me. And, uh, I think it disappoints me a lot, but I have hope that we'll, we'll come together. I think though it's uh, it it's a result of uh, we're just living in postmodern times and uh, as evinced by the fact I mean Trump and Kanye our friend Kanye Indeed. are the embodiment of postmodernism and, and I'm not saying that in the the like boogeyman way that conservatives do of like, oh, yeah, we're coming for your kids with this. Uh, I mean, postmodernism has given us David Bowie and The Simpsons and all and Pulp Fiction and all these great things. Yeah. Uh, I just don't know. Uh, I don't know how damaging it is. Like, is this something that we can move toward or, or are we just going to keep like fracturing? The funny thing, man, we are getting some meta, some meta stuff. I love it. Uh, postmodernism to me is always just the debut of the new modernism. Like, yeah. you know, I love that definition. Yeah, it's just it just it just means it's new. It's the vanguard. So David Bowie uh, was postmodern. And now, uh, you know, if somebody was making a safe version of music, it might sound something like a David Bowie song because he redefined what music is. Uh, uh, same with Pulp Fiction. Pulp Fiction came out and then, you know, like two days in the valley came out two weeks or, you know, a, a year later. And it was a movie that was designed to feel like Pulp Fiction, although it had a young Charlize Theron. It's actually not that bad. Um, <laughs> but what Kanye obviously has had a, a tremendous effect on music. I mean, it, even though it's not my favorite album, like 808 and Heartbreak is something that you hear echoed throughout a lot of pop music. Similarly, I don't know if we're ever going back to a pre-Trump world politically because what Trump did is demonstrate what that more is more. Politics had gotten into a very risk-averse meta that the, the point of it was to not make a mistake. 
Don't give your opponent something that they can use against you. Whatever you do, like just make sure that your messaging, exactly the syllable of your messaging that you want to say is put out exactly. And and you should criticize any reporter that 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 gets it wrong and you should freeze them out and freeze out their access and that's how you control the media. Where Trump was like, "No, I'm going to do 50 interviews a day. I'm going to speak and I'm going to take live questions and I am going to Every time the microphone turns on, say something that makes news, which means there is going to be plenty, plenty of times where he either misspeaks or deliberately says something provocative that is going to be a controversy. And he looked at that as a plus and not a minus. I don't know if Biden has learned that lesson. In fact, I would dare say that he hasn't, considering the fact that he's sat in his basement and not tried to create his own narrative in a way that I think he should. But I think he is realizing he has to do more as evidenced by the fact that last night the news leaked out that he's going to actually go campaign. He's going to campaign in Arizona and a few other states. Better wear a mask. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, no, I agree. And so the and with Trump specifically, I mean, Trump uh, set that up 30 years ago in Art of the Deal where he just said, yeah, you know, uh, like. You gotta kind of you have to use the media to your advantage. Uh, they're they're thirsty, which you know uh, you and I can both prove. Oh, say true. That that's true. We're, yeah, yeah. No, you need something to cover. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, so what are what are your pros and cons of the the the, the post Trump world? Like not being able to go back to that. Because for me, pros are it's kind of nice. That we, um, it's freeing that we have, uh, I'm, I'm not trying to endorse populism, but that we have someone who is just one of us. Um, cons, uh, we live in a post-Trump world. Wh what are your pros and cons on that? The best thing that's going to happen from it is we're going to see the ding-dongs way faster than we would have otherwise. Because the other system was there to minimize mistakes. Like, yeah. Remember when Marco Rubio tried to tried to get spicy and was like, hey, like you have a small penis, Donald, like and it was just really awkward and super cringe and he immediately backed away from it. It wasn't because only Trump can do that. It's that Marco can't. Yeah. And, and so you're going to see a world where it doesn't all have to be gutter stuff, but you're going to see a line between charismatic people versus non-charismatic people. If Donald Trump wins re-election, then he will have run against two extremely risk-averse candidates, and he will have taken advantage of them for that. I would have loved, loved to see him run against Obama, loved to see him run against Clinton, because I don't think either of them are risk-averse. I think they would have understood, no, 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 We've got to put out our own message. That, to me, would have been a, a much a much bigger fight. Now, Trump might lose. There is the fact that whether or not it's postmodern, much of postmodernity gets rejected. And Donald Trump may very well, if these polling is if the polling right now is correct, there's a YouGov poll just came out today that I cited early in the episode that has Biden up nine. If he's really up nine and he really wins all these swing states and he wins Florida and he wins Pennsylvania and he wins Wisconsin and he wins Michigan, then yeah. Uh, then the 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 lesson will be maybe we do need more of the risk averse strategy. Maybe that wasn't something that we had to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Hillary Clinton was just an unpopular candidate. 
But if we don't, then, man, we're going to see a lot more people saying a lot more words. And I think that means we're going to see who they are a lot faster. That's that's interesting. And, you know, I guess the theme of this show is postmodernism. Yeah. We're being postmodern here um, because we're saying, um, I mean, charisma is the it, would you say it's like one of the cornerstones of politics? Oh, sure. I mean, in terms of if you want to elevate beyond a certain level, you have to be able to hold a room. And and the best, the rare political animals are able to hold much more than that. Man, I, you know, I followed Harris, Kamala Harris around because I was certain that she would be the nominee. Yeah. Um, and part of that was she's charismatic. She's, she's, uh, terrifying like in the way like uh you know a domineering mom is yeah um but uh i don't i don't dislike kamala harris uh but i just i saw in her this i saw this look in her eyes like she was every time i saw her she had like a tear just loaded yeah depending on um what the situation was and I saw her at a, at a winery in Des Moines, and she was uh, Klobuchar was speaking that night, and then Yang was talking after her, and Yang gave Yang was like just hanging out in the audience, like in a with a in a very Yang move, and yeah. he was uh, people came up to him, and they were they were trying to chat with him, but Harris was Harris was speaking at the time, and he he was like you know he was polite about it, but he was like okay well, let's talk after. Yeah, and he listens to her speech. Yang goes up on stage and starts to give her speech. His speech. Harris sits down in the front row and waits until Yang starts the speech, and she stands up. There, there were three or four exits in in the place. Yeah, she goes to walk out the exit right near the stage. Yeah, and she took half the room with her. And uh, half of the media, yeah, while Yang is is like giving his uh, his speech, <laughs> and then she proceeded to walk around the building like a stalking lion, uh, like cornering its prey. Uh, meanwhile, people are coming in and out of the the door, and and she, you know she had her um, Kamala Harris bus at that point. I mean, yeah, this is like a year before the election. She's already had already has her bus. Um, it's probably why she ran out of money so fast. Oh, big time. I mean, I think that, I think that's, uh, I think that's exactly what happened. Like she was, she got a little cocky about things. Oh, oh, she, I mean, man, I wish she'd run a better campaign because I do think she has, she's got some killer instinct. Like she, when she wants to rip your jugular out, she shows no mercy. And there's an element of that that I love in politicians. I love the killer instinct. Uh, uh, I'll tell you what. If if Biden and Harris wins, uh, 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 Dulcie Gabbard might get Epstein. Like, like this, <laughs> there is there is no doubt. The enemies list uh, uh, of, of Kamala Harris will have Dulcie right up there at the top. Oh, because, I mean, that was the moment that effectively ended her that was brutal, man. Tulsi Gabbard ripped her apart. Well, Tulsi was, was the one that wanted to touch her. Tulsi was the one that really wanted to rip into her. Uh, and then Kamala said, you know, oh, well, you know, when you're not a serious candidate, 
uh, you have to get desperate and blah, blah, blah. It's a very condescending answer, but it does show that Kamala believes she is on a level and she will defend it. And I do think that, look, in campaigning, we can talk about all the the, the warm and fuzzy stuff, the Bill Clinton, you know, touch you on the knee and, and let you know that, that everything's going to be all right and he feels your pain. Cool. That's one side of it. The other side of it is I win, you lose. And Kamala Harris has a lot of I win, you lose in her. And I think that that is necessary. Kennedy's had that. Uh, uh, Trump has that. There is there is an element of, cool, we can, we can all spread a fun message, but guess who's going to be, you know, top of the plow, goddamn humdinger, gold cup, foam finger, number one. It's going to be uh, Kamala and, and whoever, uh, whoever else she brings with her. You're such a poet. Uh, well, so, that was that was from a Mr. Show sketch. So, uh, and I think I even bungled it. But uh, my guest has been Kevin Ryan, uh, dude. Always a pleasure. I always, I just know whenever before we started talking, we're like, oh, you want to talk about the convention? I'm like, yeah. But I just know it's gonna go wherever it wants to go, and indeed it did in such a postmodern way. Where can people find you online? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at uh, the Kevin Ryan, and uh, my website is kevinryan.us. Uh, any big, uh, any big features in the works? Uh, yeah, work, I'm working on a couple things. I'm working on a feature about the, um, the merits of emojis. So Dude. that'll, I'm not sure when that'll come out. I'm, I'm just doing the research on that. Uh, I'll, I'll keep you updated. You better, you better. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Kevin Ryan. Thank you so much, brother. Absolutely. Politics. And that, my friends, is a wrap on convention coverage for the 2020 election cycle. Wasn't what we wanted. We weren't able to be there. But we will make it up for you in four years. I know it seems so far away, but trust me, it'll be here before you know it. And hopefully, so will our Titanic $10 tier like Modesto's own Logan Cisco, N.H. Blumpkin, Chad, Headphones, Neil, Water Eye Scoop, MacBook Pro, Dallas Danger Taylor, Middle Age Mike, DTNS, Hack 5, Brad, Utah, Frozen Summers, Zach and Cheese, Captain Bunzo, Zombie Doc, Berkeley Steven, your boy Craig, Troublefilm.com, Robert, Mr. Tallyman, D. Laser, I Boot My Pants, Just Another Violet, Alex, Saverio, Martin, Jacob, Alec, Government Unfiltered, Jerry, Andrus, Archie, Jay Milius, The Gen, The Crab in My Pants, Olin and Angela Latrell, DL, I Boo My Pants, Miranda Janelle, Jenny, Robert, Glenn, Wolf, Brand, Chili Scoop, Richard, Jim, Ben and Ellen, Jay Pink, and Andrew. You want to join their ranks? You head on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. You want to follow us live? You do so at twitch.tv slash Justin R. Young. Download the app on Apple TV or your mobile device if you want to get it there. Otherwise, it's just at twitch.tv on your browser. Go ahead and follow Justin R. Young right now. You'll get alerts. It'll be a good time. If you want to get my daily thoughts each and every weekday on politics, it's free political newsletter at freepoliticalnewsletter.com. Follow me on all platforms at Justin R. Young. Until next time... This is your old pal, Jerb, saying some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more. Hey, man, they're out here talking about politics, but this is the only show talking about, oh, three, yay!
Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>